Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavich, and this is a podcast where readers can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. You can also follow us on social media at Day Beautiful on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's guest is a novelist, critic, teacher, and lifelong New Yorker. He attended the City College of New York and the Iowa Writers Workshop. His debut novel, Idlewild, is out now. Please welcome James Frankie Thomas. Hey, how you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm so excited to be here. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be inside doing a podcast instead of outside where it is 95 degrees. Yes. Um, th- I talk about weather way too much on this podcast. I lived in Phoenix forever where I was unbearable. And then uh, my partner and I, we moved to Denver for work, etc., and then I found out it's a high desert and I feel like I was tricked. I was like, what? I want snow and rain year round. Um, but yeah. Oh, but you must have been, you must have been in peak physical condition living in Denver. That's an yeah. elevated city, right? Yeah, so you I, come down and you would just like kick everyone's ass with your endurance and your oxygen. That assumes I go out and do things. Uh, but we are not <laughs> here to talk about my move or the weather. We're here to talk about your brilliant and amazing book, Idlewild. I'm going to your pinned tweet or your pinned x whatever it's called now and it's this is how you describe your book in a tweet it's gay it's trans it's about manhattan private school and queer friendship and theater kids and slash fic and 9-11 and live journal tell me more what's it really about i mean that is what it's really about but what else is it about you know, I'm glad you liked that tweet. I really agonized over how to put it all together in a single tweet. And then I decided to just like throw out a bunch of nouns that would make a certain demographic really excited. And I think it was effective. I had a lot of strangers quote tweeting it saying, oh, I love all those things. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so I'm glad I I'm glad I described it that way. <laughs> uh, but uh, to talk about it at a bit more length, it is about two people in their 30s who were very best friends in high school. And the novel alternates between um, a high school storyline, which is narrated by the two friends in a single voice in the present tense. They are such close best friends that they narrate together in a wee voice. Uh, And the novel alternates between that and then the two of them as adults in their 30s, now narrating separately, they have not seen each other or spoken to each other in 15 years. And they are thinking back on their friendship and how it fell apart. And the novel is the story of how this incredibly close, intense friendship fell apart and what has happened since then. Yeah, I, I'll i start with the, the the narration, the voice, the we. That is amazing and how you do it is amazing and it's so well executed. Why did you decide to write as we? You know, um, it's an interesting question. When I first came up with the idea for the novel. The novel was a very long time in the making. I started writing it in 2017 and I was working on it basically right up through last year. So it was like a five or six year process. But the wee voice alternating with the adult separate past tense voice uh, was always, always part of the concept. I cannot, like when I started writing it on page one, I immediately started with the wee voice. I always imagined it as having the same structure that it did eventually have. And so uh, I guess there are two reasons I can give you for how I came up with the wee voice. One of them is, um, so I worked on this novel while I was in grad school at the Iowa Writers Workshop. But before I went to grad school, I had to go to 
undergrad school. I was a college dropout, so I did not have my undergrad degree for most of my 20s. And when I decided I wanted to get serious about writing and teaching and going to grad school, I realized I would have to go back to school and get my bachelor's degree. So for the very end of my 20s and into my early 30s, I was a very late in life college student at City College and I was an English major. The English curriculum at City College, at least at the time in like 2014 through 2017, was very heavy on modernism, British modernism. So even though I was not like intentionally taking classes on Virginia Woolf and James Joyce, I ended up getting a big education in those uh, like 19 teens, 1920s modernists. I just, there was a lot of that stuff on the curriculum. And so I was just really used to thinking about uh, the ways that those uh, 20th century modernists experimented with prose style and really, uh, really twisted the English language into, oh, are you, you're frozen. Can you hear me? Yeah. No, you're good. Um, so I was, uh, I was used to thinking about all the weird ways that language could be twisted to fit the subject matter which I guess is what every writer does in some ways, but the modernists really got creative with it. And for my undergrad thesis project, I ended up doing a fictional project that played with language in the same ways that Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and T.S. Eliot and some of the other people we studied had done. And that was where I first came up with the idea of two best friends who are so close that their voices merge into a single we voice. That fictional project was not really Idlewild. It was like a rehearsal for Idlewild. It was not that similar in subject matter, but I really enjoyed the process of writing separately and then merging the two voices into a wee voice and then unmerging them as they come apart. I thought that was a really fun, interesting, a really fun, interesting uh, voice and mental space to inhabit. So when I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop and I had the opportunity to write a full length novel, I thought I wanna go back to that space. I wanna go, I think I could really return to that mode of narration. That was really fun. So I did that. And then I think the other reason is that uh, I really wanted to re-inhabit this very specific high energy adolescent mindset, like a high energy showy dramatic theater kid voice was what I really wanted to capture. and. So much of that like teenage confidence that I wanted to uh, capture on the page came from having friends and feeling like part of a group, feeling part of a, like having your identity be like part of a group of friends, a clique being a unit. And so the we voice came really naturally when I was trying to channel that, that uh, confident teenage energy. Uh, so it was really fun to channel that and then to contrast that with the adult voices of my two main characters, which are so much more subdued and thoughtful and like quiet, as opposed to the loudness of the wee voice. Uh, writing it, definitely the wee voice, writing in the wee voice felt like I was shouting through a megaphone. And then it was fun to go from that to the adult voices, which are a singular alone I and it felt like going from shouting through a megaphone to like whispering in a room and it was a dynamic that really fueled me for the five or six years it took to write the novel because whenever I got sick of one, I could switch to the other. It really, um, it really fueled me for five or six years. Yeah. And then the structure, I mean, it, and for people who haven't read it yet or will read it, it's not like then and now it's chapter after chapter switching, switching the narration. Was that always part of it or how did you play with their voice? 
Like, that was always part of it. That was definitely always part of it. And in fact, I was overambitious at first. I always structured it as what my workshop instructors and classmates semi-disparagingly called an ABAB structure. I guess in my case, it was ABC, ABC, because it was mm-hmm. very, uh, very schematic, where you would have a wee voice chapter, and then you would have a Nell as an adult chapter, and then you would have a Faye as an adult chapter. And I very rarely diverged from this. I very, very rarely diverged from it in the version I workshopped and in the final version too. But what's interesting is I was initially way too ambitious with my subject matter. And so I was using this structure to tell a very, very big story that I ultimately realized was too big for the structure I'd chosen. I was trying to, earlier, a few minutes ago in this interview, I mistakenly used the phrase, what happened since then? Uh, to describe what the novel is about. It's not Mm -hmm. about what happened since then. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) It is very specifically about what happened in the school year 2002 to 2003. Um, But initially, I also tried to cover what happened since then. I started writing it, as I mentioned, in 2017. So if you can cast your mind back to that time period, Trump had just gotten elected and the whole world felt so flipped upside down that I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to like, explain that in my work and do this broad social commentary like if not fix the world then at least you know use my novelistic powers to portray the entire world in a satirical way that would really uh really tell the story about how we the world got to this point it was too big there was too much going on it was just like an enormous amount of story and subject matter that i was trying to squeeze into the you know, the narrative mode of these two people looking back on their high school friendship. And the single most useful note I got in my entire novel writing process was uh, my thesis advisor, uh, Lan Samantha Chang at the Iowa Writers Workshop, uh, was going page by page through my, through an early version of my manuscript with me. And she had so many notes. She had so lovingly gone through the whole manuscript, which was just cluttered and overstuffed and enormous at the time. So she had a lot of notes. But at one point during that meeting, she almost sort of offhandedly said, you know, there's a lot going on in here, but what's making me turn the pages is the friendship between Faye and Nell. I want to know what happened between them. And it's so funny. That meeting must have lasted over an hour. And she told me so many other things in that meeting and outside that meeting. But that single sentence was the game changer. That single sentence made me realize, like, of course, of course, that's like what's making readers turn the pages. Everything else is a bit of a distraction. And I think I just needed someone to give me permission to uh, focus the story on something that felt so small. I think when I started writing, it didn't seem like enough to carry a novel, just the story of two people who were best friends in high school and then have not seen each other since high school. But Sam Chang is a brilliant teacher and reader and writer and person. So if she thought that was enough, like if she as a reader was sufficiently interested in the question of what happened between Faye and Nell, then that was enough for me. So I threw out that whole manuscript and I started over from page one. I rewrote the whole manuscript and then I rewrote it again several times uh, with a very narrowed focus. So it was truly like solely animated by the question of what happened between Faye and Nell. And, you know, looking back, that was always the central question of the novel. I just hadn't realized it. But by choosing that narrative structure where it alternates between the we voice and the single adult voices, 
I baked in, I baked into that structure, the question of, oh, so they were so close, they were a single unit. And then at some point they separated into two narrators, why? So like, I think that was always what the novel was going to be about. I just needed someone to give me permission to focus just on that. When you narrow the focus like that, at least for me, when I narrowed the focus, when I shrank the canvas, I was able to go so much deeper and I became smarter. I, at least when I try to do broad social commentary, I become dumb, I become a dumb pundit, you know? Mm-hmm. But as what once I started focusing on just the characters and what happened between the characters, then I became smart, I like to think. When you say you threw out the manuscript and restarted, what is your like process when you're starting a new manuscript? Are you keeping anything or are you literally not looking at the words? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because I do have a real answer to this question. Uh, So what I did for that particular uh, uh, process of shrinking the canvas and switching from like a big everything novel that explains how Trump got elected to the story of two friends who are no longer friends. uh, I was living in New Haven, Connecticut at the time. This is like a little known part of my lore because I brand myself as a lifelong New Yorker, but I did spend a year living in New Haven because I was married at the time to a doctor at the Yale hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I was, uh, I bring this up because I had, I decided to print out the manuscript that I had I guess what I did was I was like two thirds done with the big cluttered overstuffed bad version. So I thought, okay, I will just like finish the bad version, but I'm not even going to worry about making it good. I'm just going to like rush through whatever chapters and scenes I need to do to get to the end. And like, I relieved myself of the pressure to even make it sound like writing. I'm sure if you look at it now, a lot of those final chapters are just like, and then Christopher was there and then he said something and then Faye said something. <laughs> just like, mm-hmm. I just, I needed to like get to the end to see the shape of it. Um, that was about 300 pages by the time I finished uh, with a lot of scenes, just like barely scenes, just like skeleton scenes holding together like the, the wraith of a manuscript. Um, and I needed to print that out. So the reason I mentioned living in New Haven is I could only find one print shop that was walking distance from me in New Haven. And I uh, printed out the manuscript there without checking the prices first. It turns out I chose the print shop that exists solely to bilk the Yale students out of their <laughs> <laughs> So, oh my God, I was so horrified when I showed up at the print shop and collected my 300 page manuscript. They charged me, oh my God, I don't even want to say. They charged me... I want to say $60, but it was, it might've been more. It was so egregious. Wow. I mentioned this to my mentor, Sam Chang, and she was so horrified. And she said, if you ever need to print it out again, just ask me and I'll like, I'll do it for you in Iowa and mail it to you because that would be cheaper than this Yale uh, scam print shop. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say it's a scam. They need to make their money too. Paper is expensive. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I will never make that mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> so I took this high value, uh, Uh, printout of my manuscript and I sat it at my desk I put it at my writing desk and then I opened up a new word document and I started writing from scratch but I always had my printed out manuscript next to me at the desk and there were some passages some entire chapters that really didn't need that much revision and when I got to those I would just type them up I would transcribe them as I went along I used to be a professional transcriber, so I'm a very good typist, but 
it was important to me to type it all up from scratch uh, because I needed to feel myself typing out the sentences. And if I arrived at a sentence that didn't quite feel right as I was typing it, then I would improve it as I went along. I refused to copy paste in this new draft. I wanted to just completely start afresh. And that was my process for writing this entire new draft, which took about a year. And when I was done with that draft, I got some feedback on it. And then I wrote an entirely new draft that I sent out to literary agents. I think there were ultimately five or six versions of the manuscript uh, before the one that you that you see today. Yeah. And as um, a lifelong New Yorker with stops in Iowa, in New Haven, um, and a book, you know, about New York in a way, um, what was it like writing when you weren't home? Uh, so I did the bulk of the first draft, the original mm-hmm. draft I wrote in Iowa. And it was an interesting process because I was drawing so much from memory. It wasn't just that I had to draw from memory of New York versus Iowa City, though, because I wasn't just writing about New York City. I was also writing about the year 2002 and the year 2003. So it wouldn't have been enough just to be in New York. And in a way, it was helpful to not be in New York because I specifically had to call up a version of New York that doesn't quite exist anymore. Mm -hmm. 2002 wasn't like, I guess as New York goes, New York gets built over so fast, but we're not talking like deep nostalgia, 2002 New York. But uh, the flip side of that is there's little enough nostalgia for that era of New York that it's not that well documented. I mean, I'm sure it is. And I found ways to mm-hmm. uh, to access pictures and footage of it. But it was an interesting challenge to try to call up that version of New York. So I think in a way it was helpful to not be there so that I was not, um, I was not, overly influenced by the physical reality of 2017 New York around me. I just had to go from my memory. And that continued to be true when I worked on it in New Haven, because that uh, happened to be the year 2020. So I was not able to even visit New York for a lot of that time. Mm. Uh, I was, uh, But that meant that I did have to have a running list of just like geographical things I wanted to check and wasn't sure about. The I think the most ambitious Uh, geographical assignment I made for myself was in the present day frame narrative in Faye's first chapter. Faye talks about um, thinking that she might be having a dream and then she looks up and she sees the freedom tower in the distance and that's how she knows she's awake because the implication is all of her dreams are set pre 9-11 so Mm. the world trade towers aren't there then she must be awake but when I originally wrote that scene I was not I I think I had Faye standing on the corner of 15th Street and 2nd Avenue, and I was not sure if you could see the Freedom Tower uh, spire from there. So I had to make a note to myself to check that ASAP. And I did eventually move back to New York, and I set aside an entire afternoon to test this. And I went to the corner of 15th and 2nd. And as it turns out, you cannot see the Freedom Tower from there. (laughs) So I had to retrace Faye's steps. During that chapter, she's walking West and I sort of retraced Faye's journey until I got to an intersection where you could look left and see the Freedom Tower. And it turns out you really can't see it until you cross Union Square. You have to walk quite a ways away. So I ended up sort of significantly rewriting that scene to have Faye walking, like walking uh, pretty far. I have her cross to the Western edge of Union Square and I, (laughs) 
I did this trip. I did this trip myself. And I pulled up a map of the farmer's market to see. I think maybe when I did this errand myself, the farmer's market had not yet opened back up uh, mm-hmm. after lockdown. So I had to pull up a map of what stalls were usually at the farmer's market so I could place her like exactly at the She-Wolf Bakery stall or the one that sells lavender. Uh, anyway, that was fun. That was like just the side of procrastination. I think there are there are ways in which this is not necessarily the best use of a writer's time, but it was really fun. And I think of it now every time I'm in that area. And I can guarantee you that there are no geographical errors in that chapter. <laughs> I researched it really hard. Yeah. One thing I was really drawn um, drawn to in this was like using 9-11 as a frame. I was younger than the characters where I was in seventh grade. I had already moved from Pennsylvania out west. Um, but it's such like a distinct time period. Did you, going back to did you know or how did this happen? Those are my favorite and only questions I ask, I feel. Did you know 2002, 2003 was the school year for these two? Did you know that 9-11 had to happen? I mean, uh, for these characters. 9-11, unfortunately, <laughs> had to happen. The 9-11 thing was almost coincidental in the end. Mm. I honestly didn't think I had that much to say about 9-11 when I started mm. writing the manuscript. It's possible that I did not conceive of 9-11 being a major plot point in the story at all. I had a very particular reason for setting it in the 2002-2003 school year. I had two reasons, actually. Reason number one, so in real life, I am two years younger than my characters. Mm. I actually graduated high school in 2005. So my characters okay. are seniors in 02-03. I was a senior in 04-05. Got it. Uh, and I had a two-part reason, uh, maybe a three-part reason for aging up my characters. Reason one was... I just thought like setting it in a senior year, 04, 05 would be too close to home. Like I wanted to, I wanted to use my imagination a little bit. So that mm-hmm. created distance between me and the characters. That was the obvious reason. Reason number two was it just so happened. I kept a really detailed journal in 2000, the 2002, 2003 school year. I had one as a senior too, but uh, that was a blog. So it was like public written for public consumption, which was a useful resource to go back to. But the 2002-2003 journal was private and handwritten, and it was such an intimate document. So it actually has a ton of material in it that I could go back to and use. In fact, the first sequence of my novel, where it's the anniversary of 9-11, and there's a scene where Faye and Nell have a classmate who's crying because it's the 9-11 anniversary, and they don't know how to deal with this crying classmate. That is like beat for beat lifted directly from an entry in my journal where mm-hmm. I talk about this beautiful, nice girl in my class crying because it's the 9-11 anniversary and how I just, I was a little emotionally stunted at that age. And in my journal, I wrote about just like sitting there and looking at her and thinking, what, what do I do? Do I, do I say something? Do I ignore her? And then this girl's friend came in and like gave her a big hug. And I was like, oh, that was an option. I could have done that, but it's too late now. I used that like beat for beat in the novel. It was such good material. Uh, so that was um, that was one reason I went with that year. And then the third reason is the silliest but most pragmatic reason, which is I, I eventually abandoned this conceit. But when I started drafting the novel originally, I had this framing device where all the characters are meeting again at their 15 year high school reunion. 
I abandoned this conceit for lots of reasons. One of them was my workshop classmate, Michael Logan, said during my first workshop of this project. He said it so offhandedly, but he was like, nobody goes to their 15-year high school reunion. And I'm sure he did not mean for this to discourage me, but it was one of those things where like, I could not unhear it because as soon as he said it, I knew it was true. I was like, shit, no one does go to their 15-year reunion. I know mm -hmm. this in my heart. Um, but regardless, regardless, for a long time, for a couple of years, I was working off the assumption that the that the 15 year reunion was the frame narrative. And you recall, because I mentioned that I started writing this novel in 2017. So I thought, well, you know, I will age them up just so that I can set the framing device now instead of speculating what the world will be like uh, five years in the future. And Although I did abandon this device, I still cannot believe what a bullet I dodged because if I had made my characters the same age as me, I would have written an entire novel manuscript set at a 15 year high school reunion in the year 2020. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I thank myself every day for not giving myself that problem. I really feel like my writing guardian angel like went, went back in time and was like, do not, do not set your framing device at a high school reunion in 2020. You will be so sorry. Uh, so it, it ultimately didn't even matter because I didn't use that device, but uh, mm -hmm. that, was, that was the pragmatic reason for doing that. And I think it's a good lesson that sometimes the pragmatic reason is a really good reason because you have no idea what the world is gonna be like five years from now. Don't even try to guess unless <laughs> you're a speculative writer. Yeah. And I, I, with the with the journal, what was the was that the first time you had like read it? Like when you or have you seen it in the years since? I revisited it sometimes. I often like to go back and look at my old journals. It's fun. I was just uh, the other day looking back at the journal I've been keeping for the last year. And even though it's only been a few months, it was fun to go back and be like, oh, wow, I really cared a lot about that in February. And I don't care about that at all anymore. <laughs> So I was not coming to my high school journals as a complete stranger, but I think it was, it's, you know, you're a different person every time you return to your journal. Mm -hmm. And I think every time you return to it, it's going to show you something new. So for example, that entry I just described where I described not knowing how to deal with my classmate crying on the 9-11 anniversary. I think that's an example of an entry I would have skipped out of embarrassment earlier in my life. Mm -hmm. But now that I was coming to the journal, like, okay, what can I, what can I know about this character? What can I like? What can I come up with for these characters? I came to that entry with more compassion than I would have otherwise had, and I would have, and I was able to be like, "Oh, this crying girl is an interesting character," but also the person unable to deal with the crying girl is also an interesting character in a different way. Like, no one has to be the bad guy in this scene. It's just interesting. Yeah. That same entry. That same entry ends with an awful non sequitur where after I describe this like sad 9-11 anniversary, I like abruptly change the subject and talk about auditions for the school play. And I describe watching my friend audition for a part. And I just wrote down in my journal, she totally sucks. She's not gonna get the part. Well, A, this was very mean of me. B, I was wrong. She did get the part. She was fine. <laughs> We were all fine because we were all in high school. Yeah. I think that's a great example of something that I would I would have like tried not to look at when revisiting my journal before because it's just so mean and so awful. But it's such good material if you are writing a novel about characters who are kind of mean and kind of stupid and very wrong about a lot of things. Uh, so that uh, that was the kind of thing I tried to find in my high school journal. And it was very interesting. 
Yeah. You know, listening to you talk and then like thinking back to the book, it is so fascinating just how your voice, your, and then your written voice, like is just so expressive and so full and, uh, yeah, that's just a compliment about how how lived in these characters Faye and Nell felt. I honestly felt like I was in New York during the school period. And I just, I, yeah, I'm just, this is my compliment part of the thank podcast. You. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really glad you feel that way. I worked so hard on that aspect of it. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, I guess I'll just, I, I, I think just for the sake of time, there's so many questions I could ask about the book, but I, I think leaving it to make readers leave it or read it. Um, I'm just going to make them read this book. It's so good. Idlewild, but I'll ask like, what have you been reading? What are you vibing with? Um, debuts, non-debuts, the Bible, whatever. <laughs> what if I was like, Oh, I've been sitting with the Bible every night. No, I've been neglecting I, the Bible lately. <laughs> I use that as like my like funny thing. And maybe I shouldn't anymore, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Uh, what have you been reading? Uh, I'm actually so glad you asked that because I just read a book that I am so excited about and I cannot shut up about it. And mm -hmm. I'm a newcomer to it. This book came out a couple of years ago, I think, but I only just got around to reading Daryl by Jackie S. Do you know this novel? Mm, yeah, I haven't read it, but yeah, I know what you're talking uh, about. Yeah, I had heard of it and heard of it and it had been on my list forever and I just hadn't gotten around to it. But I finally had a friend who gave me her copy. And I have not had a reading experience like this in such a long time. It was so destabilizing and so funny. I don't know when was the last time you had an experience like this. I don't know the last time I had a reading experience where like sentence to sentence, I had no idea what was gonna happen, like no idea where it was going. It creates such a bizarre fictional universe. And I almost don't wanna spoil anything about it, but for your readers, if I can just like gush about it a little bit. Yeah. The conceit of this novel is the narrator is a man named Daryl, who is a cuckold. He has a cuckolding fetish and he likes to watch men have sex with his wife. That's that's the like the starting point of the story. And it's structured sort of like blog posts, although uh, it's not clear like where he's posting, if this is public or in a forum or on a blog or just like his secret diary. But we but that means that every chapter is like a post, which means it has a very short point of telling so everything he narrates has just happened and this is such a good narrative device because it means that he has absolutely no perspective on anything that's happening and he just seems so confused and surprised all the time and I as a reader felt so confused and surprised all the time and really truly you begin reading it and it's not clear if it's going to go in a supernatural direction there's some early hints that it might or if it's going to be a romance or a love story, or if it's going to be a crime story. And I won't even mm -hmm. reveal what it turns out to be or whether maybe it's a mix of all of them. But oh my God, the twists and turns it takes, it is so funny. I was laughing out loud on every page, but it's also like deeply intelligent and beautiful too. And uh, I just, I just hope everybody reads it. I really, I love this novel so much. Yeah, I definitely have to check it out. It's been on my list of like things I should read. Um, but speaking of blog posts, I'll end on this blog post. Uh, AIM is involved in your book. Do you? What was your screen name? What was your live journal? Do you remember them? <laughs> so interestingly, live journal plays a huge role in my novel, but uh -huh. it's a little bit of stolen valor there. I was not really a live journal user. Yeah. I I was a blogger. Blogging was very important to me sure. in my teen years. But uh, my my blogging platform of choice was Blogger or Blogspot, mm -hmm. as it was yeah. called then. Uh, 
I looked down on LiveJournal, which is very funny. I, as a teen, I imagined that LiveJournal was for girls. LiveJournal was for like personality quizzes and fanfic <laughs> writers. What's funny is like, I still love personality quizzes. I loved personality quizzes then. And God knows I loved fan fiction and I still do. But LiveJournal, I just like felt like such a public way of associating yourself with those things. Mm-hmm. And I think Thing. I associated I associated Live Journal with being very open about your feelings and like gushing about your feelings, yeah. whereas Blogspot was like the cerebral thinking man's <laughs> blocking platform. Uh, all of this is, of course, very silly. But uh, as a result, I I really only had any familiar familiarity with Live Journal as a reader. I would read my mm-hmm. friends' journals. I would I would of course read fan fiction on Live Journal, but you know, as a lurker, not as a participant. Uh, yes. So, yes. I think part of what uh, inspired me to fold Live Journal into the narrative of my novel is I am like, what's the word? I'm like reclaiming it a little bit for myself because Live Journal was important. And all of the things that led me to avoid Live Journal as a young blogger were actually all the things that made it great and all of the things that lived within me that I was ignoring in myself. Uh, I miss Live Journal a ton. It was really an incredible blogging platform. It's actually still out there, I have ascertained. Not exactly thriving, but you know, it's, uh, it's not wrong. Um, so I, I wish that I had spent more time on live journal as a teen. I bet that's a sentence that no one has ever said before. I wish that I spent more time on live journal as a teen. Um, and I think that, uh, I am not the only writer who has gotten elegiac about, about live journal. I know that a lot of the a lot of trans writers around my age or slightly older than me even have a lot of nostalgia for live journal the novel nevada by imogen binney live journal is very central to i think live journal was a hub for trans people uh, mm. in its heyday uh and actually that makes it significant i think that i avoided it when i did i wonder if i sort of had that association even at the time uh, but i i wish we had a platform like live journal now uh, something really text-based and unbeholden to advertisers and something that makes it easy to form communities uh, with the option to be very private, but also the option to be open if you want to invite new people to the community. Yeah. I miss it a ton and I wish I could go back and apologize to Live Journal for <laughs> stereotyping it and being snooty about it. It doesn't deserve that. Thank you so much to James Frankie Thomas for joining the Day Beautiful podcast to talk about his book, Idlewild, which is out now. You can find him on the internet at jamesfrankiethomas.com, on Instagram at jamesfrankiethomas, and on Twitter at james underscore f underscore thomas. You can find Day Beautiful at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at daybeautiful. And as always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful. And you're all beautiful.